Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Department of English and Comparative Literature, and the Society of Fellows in Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Dean of Humanities and PAR Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia, Sarah Cole's book, Inventing Tomorrow, H.G. Wells and the 20th Century. First, we'll hear Sarah speaking about her book at the panel, and then we'll hear the comments Victor Laval, Associate Professor of Writing at Columbia, made at the panel. Thank you, uh, Alan, and I'll just echo his thanks to the Society of Fellows and the Heyman Center for the Humanities and the Division of the Humanities, which, as we all know, is the best of all divisions. Um, And um, a huge warm thanks also to Columbia University Press, represented here by uh, Philip Leventhal, which has been absolutely everything one could want in a press. So if you're trying to decide, should I do Chicago, should I do Harvard, should I do Columbia, I have the answer. Um, So thank you for being here, and especially thanks to these wonderful panelists for taking the time to read the book and come share their thoughts. I'm extremely privileged and honored and thrilled to be sitting up here with all of you. And thank you, Alan, for being a wonderful chair and for those introductions. Um, So, H.G. Wells, there he is. I'll start by saying that this was a very different um, kind of book for me to write. It was a very challenging kind of book as well, uh, very new for me. Um, But it was one that I felt passionate to write. Um, I felt compelled over these last five or six or maybe even seven years to understand and to express what I came to see as a really big missing piece in my understanding, and I think I can say more broadly our understanding of the imaginative life of the 20th century. I wonder if we can open those doors and have allow for they seats. They wanted to shut um, I just. There's one back. The fire, the one fire escape. OK. The fire marshal. Oh, there are also seats up there. So if people want to do that, they should. Um, All right, the imaginative life of the 20th century, that's where we were. Um, So let me start by saying a little bit about that story, um, about why I thought it was important to write a book about H.G. Wells and why I still think, now that it's done, that it was important to write a book about Wells. Um, I'll say just a little bit about what the book actually is about, um, what we find um, when we sit down and read um, among Wells' gigantic, massive corpus of works, um, and then and how that changes and reorients and kind of recharges um, the literary period in question. Um, and lastly, I'll just say a very few words about legacy, about how I see uh, Wells' work um, in our own contemporary world. Um, so just in terms of the time frame um, of the literary culture I'll be discussing, I just want to orient everybody. Wells was born in 1866, um, one year um, after Yeats, if that's your, uh, if you're thinking of the literary uh, crowd. And he died in 1946, one month before his 80th birthday. Um, he was born uh, to, in, into a class, I'm not an expert on the class structure of 19th century England. If anybody else here is, um, you're a genius. Um, but in any case, um, he was born into the class that's the very bottom rung of the middle class. Maybe Matt can tell us more about this later. Um, his mother was a lady's maid, and his father was a gardener and a shopkeeper, and his, his destiny in life was to be in the drapery trade. Um, he wrote his first novel, The Time Machine, in 1895. 
Um, and from then on, he wrote nonstop for the next 50 years until his death. He led an enormously interesting life. Um, this is not a biography. Um, there are biographies out there. Um, but just to say, he became immensely famous. Um, as a writer, he became very wealthy. He was divorced in the 1890s, was unusual, and remarried. He had children, both in and out of marriage. He had a huge number of sexual affairs, which is also not the subject of this book, but there is one by David Lodge about that. Um, and he was deeply engrossed in basically everything that anyone was thinking about in the first half of the century. If you wanted to do one of these great books in which you tell a cultural history by the story of a life, Wells would be a good candidate. I should say up front that he's not always the most likable person. He has some very um, troubling views and ways of expressing um, what in other ways can be very humane and remarkable um, ideas. So um, if in the Q&A you're interested in the experience of writing about someone whom I deeply admire and whose work I feel is enormously important and at the same time I'm very troubled by, um, it was an interesting part of the experience and I would be happily uh, willing to do that. But so why this book? Um, the decision to write this book really came to me as a kind of epiphany, not to be too modernist here, um, but I had been reading um, and writing about uh, and teaching about modernism for two decades or more. I had written two books on canonical modernist authors like Wolfe and Joyce and Eliot and Forster and Yeats. I had spent also a great deal of time thinking and writing and reading about the First World War. Um, and through all of this, I barely noticed a kind of shadowy figure uh, in the margins, in what I came to think of as my peripheral vision, um, and that was H.G. Wells. Um, Virginia Woolf regularly chose him as her kind of favored other against whom she would set herself and uh, the other modernists in her cohort, um, whom she described as modern, um, ditto T.S. Eliot. Um, but then Conrad dedicated The Secret Agent to Wells, which I am embarrassed to say, but it's symptomatic of this whole phenomenon that I had read, written about, taught, and somehow never noticed um, that it was dedicated um, to Wells. There was a famous friendship with Henry James, which ended up in an equally or even more famous split. Um, so he was coming up constantly, including um, in reference to the war. Basically, everything I was reading about the war, um, he was uh, there. I actually quoted him in one of my earlier books without even noticing it. Um, so um, meanwhile, uh, here in the Academy, H.G. Wells is and was nowhere. Um, it's a really um, salient fact that I had never read a single work of his in any course I've ever taken in my entire educational career. And in fact, when I decided to write this book, I had only read maybe five, if that, uh, five novels um, of his. I love those ones I had read, and I um, would put the time machine sometimes as the first uh, text on my modernism survey syllabus. I had coffee um, a few weeks ago with somebody, and I was telling her about the book. She was a former student. She was a student of mine you know, uh, 15 years ago, and she said, oh, yeah, you taught that we, we read the time machine in, in your class. And I thought, oh. Remember that. Um, <laughs> so anyway, here, here, uh, you know, here he was, everywhere and no here, nowhere. Um, so what was going on? Um, and I realized, with again the force of true conviction, that there was a story to tell here, um, and that something was going on. Um, in fact, as I launched into this project, I found that all aspects of this were much, much more pronounced than I had realized um, going in. Wells was absolutely everywhere in this period. Um, as I came to learn, he was by far the most widely read author of this period in literary history. His first writings were actually in the 1880s, even before The Time Machine was published in 1895. It became a bestseller when it came out, and from there, that was it. 
he was off. Uh, we know him as a science fiction writer, of course. Um, science fiction really can be said to have come into its formation over the next half decade um, with The War of the Worlds, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, The First Man in the Moon, and a whole variety of short uh, novels and stories from this period. Um, he then went on to write another 95 books or so, um, which ranged across every genre you can imagine, including those like science fiction that he was helping to invent. Um, there's a whole kind of genre of the sort of essay novel, as I think of it, that was really um, a Wellsian product. Um, he wrote an amazing autobiography, which, like all of these books, was read by pretty much everyone in the period when it came out in the 30s. Um, he wrote comic novels, social novels, realist novels, and novels that shift among these types. He was world famous as a speculator um, and um, a, uh, a, 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 an author of all manner of forecast, fictional and otherwise. He wrote history, science, and economics for a mass audience, um, for a non-specialist mass audience. Um, and in that genre, we, I would include The Outline of History, which I think if you're going to ask what's your favorite of all his books, you probably weren't going to ask what people do. Um, <laughs> it's The Outline of History, uh, which is a world history. Um, it begins with the formation of the planet and ends, I was going to say, with the present, but this is well, so actually in the future. Um, and uh, it was sold literally millions of copies after it was published in 1920. Um, the Outline of History was written with the modest goal of ending warfare forever um, by <laughs> providing a common history and a, co a story of a common history for all human beings who would see, therefore, that they also had a common uh, future and fate. Modesty, by the way, is out of the window when we're talking about Wells, so let's just forget about it. Um, he wrote political tracts of all sorts and lengths. He wrote a Human Rights Manifesto in 1940 that was the template, one of the templates for the UN's uh, decade later. And his books, as I've said, sold in the millions and were translated into many, many, many languages, often almost immediately after publication in English. He made films and he became a staple of the BBC airwaves. He was also sought as a voice and a thinker on subjects that range from education to warfare to sex to science to time. Winston Churchill read all of his books. Um, he had meetings, uh, sort of one-on-one -on -one meetings with both Roosevelt's when they were presidents, with Lenin, and with Stalin in what became a very famous or infamous uh, conversation in 1934 that was published in The New Statesman. Um, I think above all, perhaps, in the minds of his contemporaries, he was a futurist and a utopian. He believed that the world could and should and will, if we all read his books, um, get better um, and even get not exactly perfect, but as I say, utopian, he embraced that uh, title. I should say, though, that if you begin to read Wells, you'll find that for every utopia, there's a, a darker, and for people in 2020 or 2019, probably more interesting dystopia. His mind was thoroughly contradictory in the way he approached all his subjects. And so anything you read of his, you're going to find these interlocked uh, distinctions and opposites um, together creating uh, the text. Um, to speak of modernism again, uh, he was very much on the minds of pretty much everybody. He was under their skin. So there seems to be a basic fundamental contradiction or disjunction here. Um, the literary culture of the period from 1950, from 1900 to 1950 that has lived on, the one that I was educated in, the one that continues to define the field, even with all of the newness and the, and the extension and the broadening that modernist studies has undergone in the last 20 years, even so, there's a recognizable literary culture. And not only does it not include Wells, but it interestingly defined itself as against him. 
Um, and I would also just say, I haven't mentioned Orwell. I can't prove to you that Orwell chose his pen name because it's Orwell. Z but it's probably true. He was obsessed with Wells and his whole, in some ways, his, all his greatest writings, his famous uh, anti-utopias, were directly um, envisioned um, as uh, an, an answer to Wells. So there's, it's not just about pro and anti or about defining against. I think what's most interesting is to recognize how deeply the literary culture of this long period uh, was entwined with his works and ideas. Um, I just have one visual. I was talking to someone like, what should I do here? And she said, you should have an interesting visual. Um, so there it is. Um, that's one of these n-gram graphs that you make of tracking the references in the Google Books archive. Alex Gill, who's one of our wonderful digital um, humanists here, helped me put this together um, uh, in, you know, when I first started this project. We don't need to study it, but you can see the references um, to Wells in blue and Wolf in red and how the lines meet in around the 1950 to 55 and then diverge in their own uh, directions. And I wanted to show you this because what's most interesting and I think um, telling about this is the moment of switch, which is in the 50s. Um, and for those of you who know about how literary um, tastes were developed, it was really with the new critics and with the Criterion Group in England um, when modernism became cemented as the kind of um, literature of value um, in curricula and all around uh, the world, and you can really see what happens there. Um, this is just a sampling of my bookshelf. It goes on in many directions like that. Um, so what would happen if we returned to this moment in literary history and started over? Um, if we set aside modernist values and dogma, of which there is so much, and to ask afresh, what was Wells writing? What were all these people reading? What happens to the whole of literary culture if we approach um, it by reading his works alongside those of modernism or in some kind of productive contrast or dialectic with it? So what I found and what I argue over the course of the book is that a great deal, in fact, changes. Um, I try over the course of the book to elaborate how things look differently if we read Wells um, and try to consider the nature of his intervention in literature especially and culture and to some degree politics over this rich 50-year span. The book is organized thematically, um, each chapter taking up one of the big topics um, that motivated Wells's work. And not all of them. There are other topics that I had to finally uh, give up on. Um, and throughout it, I roam throughout his long and diverse uh, corpus of materials. And it's important that while I'm interested in and very attentive to books that we still know and read, like The Island of Dr. Moreau or The Time Machine or Tano Bungay, I'm also equally interested in um, spending time with the works that are forgotten today, of which there are many, many, many. Um, so the first chapter is entitled Voice, um, and it analyzes Wells's writing um, style, um, his, his uh, uh, his, as I say, his voice, um, his choices, his kind of key provocations, um, specifically in relation to form, style, and technique. And I should say, that may sound like a pretty straightforward thing to do. This is never, ever done with Wells. Even those who read him seem to think of his style as a kind of flat, dull surface to get over um, in order to understand or to think about the content there. But in fact, it was, it is a very complex and powerful accomplishment, uh, which again, uh, let me remind you, managed to bring together an unbelievably enormous and diverse uh, readership in his lifetime. Um, just one aspect of this chapter that I would mention in passing um, is the um, effort that I make to challenge what is really a true literary doctrine cemented by modernism, though not invented by it, that the fiction writer should show and not tell. Um, Joyce puts it simply when he writes, I want the reader to understand always through suggestion rather than direct 
statement. This was not Wells's view um, emphatically, and his works do his books do all kinds of didactic, educative work. They are, in his own view, a form of education. Um, I might just add here, just um, as a little bit of an aside, that I have not used the word popular. Um, not because his works weren't popular in one sense, but because I want to be careful about the notion of popular literature, which, though actually there's a ton of really interesting, great work going on in rethinking what it means, uh, what popular literature was doing in this period, there are certain connotations that tend to stick to the word, the, the concept of popular literature, one of which being sort of derivative rather than, say, original, um, and that it's meant to be kind of upholding rather than challenging norms and expectations, that it's meant to be comfortable in some way. But Wells's writing was emphatically none of those things. Um, his work provokes and provokes and provokes. It grabbed the Victorian imagination by the throat, and it was always intended to make readers think and to feel uncomfortable. Um, how else could it produce change, even revolution, which was the goal? How else was it going to bring about the great future that he intended? In Wells's view, it always takes a war to end war. So after this chapter, setting up Wells's voice, don't worry, I'm not going to give as much detail on the others. I have chapters focused on his large themes. One is war. Um, this, title, this chapter is entitled Civilian. And the argument there is that Wells's long career of envisioning war, especially total war, for which he was very um, famous and important, um, in, throughout all this, he brought to life one particular kind of person, an important new figure in the moral life of the 20th century, and that is the civilian. That is the civilian defined in relation to war. Um, the civilian became for Wells the ultimate casualty of modern warfare, but also in his view, and this is what's so important, the source for challenging the world forces, forces that lead to war. The chapter on time, perhaps appropriately, is the longest in the book um, and makes the case for Wells as a kind of philosopher of time. I shared it with one of your uh, philosopher colleagues who works on time, and she claimed that it was very interesting. Um, <laughs> what else is she going to say? Um, but anyway, a philosopher of time whose journeys both forward and back represent a genuine and startling engagement with the meaning and experience of temporality. And here I also look at his profound engagement, of course, with the future, as one would expect, but also about how he wrote and reconfigured history, um, which was another major uh, project. Uh, the last chapter, biology, takes up one of Wells's lifelong preoccupations, um, and that is the nature and concept of life. Um, that is to say, organic biological life. Um, Wells, you should know, was trained as a scientist. Um, I mentioned earlier his lower class status. Um, by dint of some fortuitous accidents and his sheer genius, he ended up as a scholarship student in London in the 1880s at what was then called the Normal School of Science, which was one of these new universities in the middle of the 19th century that was set up to train future science teachers. He was kind of a middling student, actually. He kept getting distracted. Um, but he had one great life-changing experience, which is that he studied for one year with the great uh, biologist Thomas Huxley. Um, and this really set the stage for a half century of exploring the meaning and the consequences of essential biological facts like evolution, waste, growth, and reproduction. So these chapters are oriented around some of the big themes that run throughout Wells's books. All along, I consider his biggest idea with the one that motivated his writing and his life for this whole long period, and that was the urgent need to end war. Um, war, conflict, and inequality, and I would also say um, to safeguard the planet um, across the world. Um, he believed that this was eminently possible, and unlike most of us, he had a solution. Um, and that was 
not necessarily an easy one, but it was his solution, which was to eliminate nations and to forge a single world state. Um, so I sum this up, uh, this quest up in his conclusion. So there's much more, obviously, that I could say and share about uh, what I argue in the book, but let me just conclude with a few thoughts about legacy, about where Wells is now. Um, on one hand, as I've said, he is pretty much precisely nowhere um, in literary studies, um, but in other ways, he does continue, continue to loom large, if you know where to look. Um, most strikingly, of course, Wells is here in contemporary mass culture, and particularly in fantasy and science fiction. Time travel, Martian invasion, invisibility, animal-human hybridity, utopia and anti-utopia. It's not just that these were his themes or that he wrote some of the iconic um, texts that set these up, but that his way of, of um, grappling with the deepest problems and the most interesting facts of our humanity or of contemporary life or political life through these configurations is one um, that is still very powerful with us today. And I would say that even uh, dystopian writers like Margaret Atwood, if there are any Margaret Atwood fans um, as I am here, um, I think of her as still very much engaging with Wells. And she's a great Wellsian reader, by the way, another side point. She wrote a fantastic introduction to the Penguin edition of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, in an undergraduate course I taught on Wells um, a few years ago, we had a course wiki. It was called Wells is Everywhere, and the students were invited, actually required, um, to <laughs> post on places where they found Wells. This being Columbia, they kept finding him anticipated in like some weird part of Augustine or Aquinas, you know, or some esoteric German composer. Um, but they also found him where I would more have expected, um, resonating in comics and games and films and TV and the rest. Um, but for me, what's ultimately perhaps more compelling than the unrecognized presence of Wells in popular imaginative life um, are the various roads that Wells um, set out on, that's a terrible way to put it, but anyway, on which Wells set, um, and that we have chosen not to follow or not to realize um, that we have followed. He believed fervently that writing, literary writing, all kinds of writing could and should change the course of history. Um, and that seems at this point, 70 years into modernist sovereignty, deeply counterintuitively. Um, just two pithy quotes. Wells is not known for being pithy, I have to say, <laughs> um, having worked my way through nowhere near all of his writings, but literally millions of words that he wrote. Um, but these are, uh, there are a couple of little um, uh, statements that tend to resonate and, and really kind of gather together in many ways um, his own uh, views and aspirations um, for his own life and for us today. Uh, we might think of his comment that this is the war that will end war from 1914 as an irony, but he meant it and he spent his life trying to make it true. And then um, a wonderful line that really resonates through much of his work um, about human history being uh, more and more a race between education and catastrophe. And you can think about that um, as you go. Um, but I just wanted to conclude by reading my conclusion. Isn't that clever? A kind of doubling over of the forms. Um, so I'm just going to read the last paragraph since I think it's always nice to hear uh, one's writerly voice as well. So this is the last paragraph in the book, spoiler alert. Um, and what about Wells the person? Do we need to extol him or believe in the direction of his work in order to be Wellsians? My answer, of course, is no. In the end, it's a way of scrutinizing, demanding, inventing, and imagining. Whoa, that's not the next page. Wells's old friend Conrad had written that he wanted, above all, to make you see. Wells also constructs a new line of sight, but much more than that, he offers a vista for literature, a challenge. 
To take a cue from Wells is to pressure ourselves to ask what our idea of a better future might be and how, with the tools at our hands, we might seek to create it. Wells's categories and particular aspirations may not be ours, and his shortcomings are all too visible. But his work is a spur to construct one's own visions for things to come, to borrow his own term, and to wonder what kind of writing might now be available to the imagination to launch such projects. It's both modest and immodest. Modest become, because one recognizes the daunting forces that stand in the way of human happiness, peace, and harmony, Wells' goal, goals for us as successors. And immodest, because what Wells teaches is that being one small person is really an illusion. It was Wells' view, as we know, that each of us is above all a member of the species or of the human race, and that each thus contributes to its longevity and prosperity. For all of the attunement to the minuscule nature of our planet in the huge realms of space and time, not to mention the scale of any one single person, still, Wells reminds us that a tiny voice might seem less infinitesimal as it ripples and sounds through a larger space and being, the world. I do not know whether my reader will be convinced that Wells is one of the greatest and most innovative writers of the century. I hope that in considering Wells' lifetime of writing, that reader, you, will feel motivated, that's aspirational, will feel motivated to ask of literature, what can and should it do for the world for tomorrow? Now, we'll hear the comments Columbia professor Victor Laval made at the panel. Uh, hello everybody, my name is Victor Laval. Uh, I'm uh, really happy to be here. Uh, as was said in the introduction, I'm a novelist and I'm a living novelist. <laughs> uh, I'm grateful that I was invited to join people in the uh, right to talk about the book and to celebrate Sarah's book. Uh, I thought I would talk um, uh, more personally as a writer of fiction, but even more as a person who teaches writing. Uh, and some of the things that struck me about this book that I thought were valuable and might be useful specifically for me to bring back uh, to the MFA side of things, the writers who are producing work now, right? Um, so I did my MFA here at Columbia, and now I teach here at Columbia, so a very small uh, trip for me. <laughs> um, but um, one of the things that I noticed uh, only in retrospect was like uh, when we got to the, to the program, uh, all of us were working on our things, that, and I, we were a moderately diverse group of writers, but there was something uh, almost without fail um, essentially the same about everything everyone wrote, right? And now as a teacher, I notice that in the work of nearly every student that comes into my uh, workshops, right? And um, I just want to read a portion of the, the book because I realized as I was reading this part that Sarah had uh, essentially named what it was that I was noticing we were doing. Um, and I just want to read this little part of this paragraph. Modernism, at least in some of its most influential iterations, sought narrative methods that would bring the sensory present into immediacy. The illusion is of unmediated contact with the world. Texts are swarmed with impressions, sense perceptions, and the tide of memory. The author, as if invisible. As Joyce puts it simply, I want the reader to understand always through suggestion rather than direct statement. Wells, by contrast, was a master at constructing didactic spaces within his novels, blending fiction with essay and interweaving direct, often intricate analysis of matters like economics, social change, and history, articulated as such into his literary creations. And then skip down a little bit and it says, why is it always preferable for a novelist to tell us subtly and obliquely what she thinks rather than simply arguing? 
And when I read that bit, I was really struck by the way that um, uh, essentially, it seems a little silly to say, but essentially how modernism had won the battle of the MFA program. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and how, even worse, how I, I had not understood when I entered the program that it had won that battle, right? And uh, that I had not agreed that it should win, but that somehow I had been taught it, or I had, uh, I had accepted the idea that uh, writing like Wells would be somehow middle-brow or low-brow, and therefore I should be subtle, and I shouldn't talk clearly about what I mean, I shouldn't argue. Uh, and it, uh, it, it, uh, so reading that passage was a really nice uh, reminder to me that a book like this, uh, for all the ways that it's obviously shaping academic discourse, I thought could really be valuable for literary writers today, right? Because uh, you know, in truth, what often happens when I'm teaching in the MFA program is that uh, students will come to me over the course of their two years there, and they will talk about, like, here's the stories I'm writing. They're very, very uh, sort of uh, modernist in that, like, uh, nothing happens and you hear a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> but then they would often also, and some of them mean that, right? That is, that is the thing that they want to create. But then there's a, a good number who come to me privately in office hours and say, look, here's what I really want to write. And it looks like Wells. Much more than it looks like solely the modernists who we revere, right? And so I just, I mean, I just felt like the things that, that struck me so much about this book and made it feel so valuable in another arena outside of academia, for the literary world potentially, uh, was the way that it might make write, uh, writers feel um, maybe less foolish for wanting to uh, incorporate all the things that Wells does so well. Um, but they would also require on some level uh, a very serious book to make them feel less foolish, right? And that they could then take to their professors and say, look, I'm not doing something trash. <laughs> I'm doing something really, really smart and interesting and important. And in, and, and point of fact, uh, one of the things that I also think is very interesting, and I mean, more, more recently, right, I just off the top of my head, I'm just thinking writers like Kelly Link and Karen Russell winning MacArthur Genius Awards uh, suggests to me in whatever small way, um, and not that long ago, Octavia Butler winning one, maybe 25 years ago, uh, suggests to me that there are small holes in this little, uh, in the dike uh, that keeps that sort of, uh, um, keeps that wall up, right? Uh, but that it required, that uh, on some of what I uh, really uh, so greatly appreciated about this book and uh, what I take away from this book is the idea that uh, that work might need to come from both sides, right? That the literary writers might need to be writing that stuff, but that there might need to be academics who appreciated the stuff they were doing and how it was uh, sophisticated and intellectual and worthwhile, uh, uh, and a, a worthwhile uh, sort of new experiment, right? Because uh, on some level, um, you know, all the, the things that I, I mentioned there that, uh, uh, Sarah lays out that modernism meant to do, uh, if everyone who's coming into an MFA program is doing it, then it's not a terribly revolutionary <laughs> act anymore, right? And then in fact, maybe, I mean, I know, uh, I don't know how many folks here read autofiction, you know, uh, but I do feel like one of the exciting things about <coughs> autofiction is, along with those folks who are writing whatever might be called speculative fiction, cross-genre fiction, uh, is that those are people who are trying to do, I think, something much closer to what Wells is doing. And the fact that some of those works are, that those works are some of the most exciting 
uh, works that are being published right now, um, uh, seems to me like a, a very positive sign uh, for the uh, for just new blood, new new water in in the realm of like literary conversation about what we might do and how we might represent the modern the the life of the modern human being, right? Uh, and then uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention was uh, just toward the end. I mean, Sarah already read it, uh, but the last little bit that I thought was uh, really pretty revolutionary, at least to me, was that sort of question about like um, what might a novel um, uh, I hope that in considering Wells' lifetime of writing, that reader, you will feel motivated to ask of literature what can and should it do for the world and for tomorrow. And it occurred to me getting to that last line. Uh, the other thing that I think uh, literary fiction, some literary fiction, uh, certainly within the MFA world, uh, that we sort of have stopped asking is, might this work in any way speak to the world and change the world? Right? I mean, I, I took uh, great pleasure in the fact that uh, um, Richard Powers won uh, Pulitzer Prize for the Overstory this year, considering that it's just a book about trees, <laughs> right? And, uh, but that it, but on, obviously on a deeper level, it was a book that was absolutely saying, what, do we, what can this book do in the world to make people think of the world, right? And that I thought that was an audacious and bold thing for a novelist to, uh, to try. Right, and, and I was just grateful that it's treated as both a popular, uh, sorry, what is it? Uh, widely read. Uh, widely read. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also a, uh, um, at least somewhat respected novel within literary circles, right? I don't know, it depends on people's feelings about the Pulitzer Prize, I guess. But uh, 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 I felt like, a, the, so I was just in brief uh, uh, so appreciative of this book for the ways that I actually thought it was speaking directly to what at least I see as a, both a writer and as a teacher uh, are some of the most exciting ways that people are essentially cycling back to what H.G. Wells seemed to have been doing and was perhaps uh, sort of laughed out of the room uh, on some level, but maybe that just wasn't the right room for him, <laughs> uh, but that there's another room that wants him. At least I want to be in that Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Sarah Cole's book, Inventing Tomorrow, H.G. Wells in the 20th Century. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Marianne Hirsch and Leo Spitzer's book, School Photos in Liquid Time, Reframing Difference. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.